You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Carrie Chevalier. I'm William McVeigh, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. There were moments of concern, but they were brief. I was diagnosed with a learning disability in first grade, and it took me quite a few years to catch up to my peers. I wonder if my mom had given up on my early dreams of becoming a doctor. My daughter permanently lost hearing in one ear. Would this hinder her? My son was a touch too slow on standardized testing. He had a processing issue. Would he have trouble getting into college? At one time or another, many of us have special needs that could impact our financial and emotional lives. Often, however, these hurdles are minor. Many resolve with money or time or special care. They don't necessarily hinder us in the long term. Many, but not all. Are you looking to elevate your asset allocation, guard your portfolio against volatility? Equity Multiple can help. Invest in professionally managed commercial real estate starting with just $5,000. Establish passive income streams while experienced asset managers go to work on your behalf. Sign up at equitymultiple.com forward slash earn and receive an enhanced return on your first investment. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash earn. If you go to a financial independence meetup or conference, you might run into William McVeigh and Carrie Chevalier. They are dear friends of mine and face all the struggles and triumphs of aspiring towards wealth as you and I, with one glaring exception. They are both parents of special needs children. William and Carrie, welcome to Earn and Invest. William, let, let me take you back to the beginning of your relationship together. Describe the preparations that were necessary for you and Carrie to go on your first date together. Ooh, so I have twin autistic boys. They are right now almost 20, but the time that Carrie and I were meeting up and were introduced through Bumble, they were about 15, but developmentally they were more like eight, and that might be generous. So for us to do a, our first meeting, I had to arrange childcare for one of my teenagers. Norm, and it's odd because I would normally, there have been times when my kids have had a uh, childcare who was younger than the boys were, but they're mostly focused on just keeping the boys inside and attentive to what their task is as opposed to wandering outside. But yeah, I guess it would be the childcare situation was the biggest thing. And Carrie, likewise, do you remember that first date? And did you have to do anything special to kind of make sure your kids were okay before you were available just to leave the house? Actually, it's really funny because even a step back, I should say, when you start to date and you have a child with special needs, you always wonder when you bring that up. When do I mention something about that? And so it was really funny because William and I knew that about one another ahead of time because... I had actually brought up the fact he talked about his kids being a little older. I brought up the fact that for somebody my age, I had a younger um, child because he's 13 now. And William mentioned, well, even though my boys are older developmentally, they're probably the same age as your son. And so that then led me to talking about my daughter and, and us having that conversation. For me, he actually didn't have childcare the first date because it was very 
in the moment. My daughter had gone away to my parents' house and was visiting while my son went to hockey camp. My parents had done that at that point. I was a single mom. They had done that because they wanted time with her. And also they thought it would be great while he was at hockey camp. She goes with my parents and I have a week by myself. And so I had taken him to hockey camp, was talking to William on the way back from there. And he said, why don't you just come meet me for dinner? And I said, no way, no how. I am a mess. I've just moved a kid into a sweaty dorm room, all of this. He's like, I don't care. So we met at a restaurant that was just a mile from the house. And the thing that I remember so well is I didn't know how affected his kids were, but he and I had talked and he said, I just have to tell you that I've left my kids for about the max amount of time that I can, but I really don't want to end this conversation with you. So I know it's odd, but would you mind coming to my house? And that was, I said, what are your kids going to think if I come to your house? And he said, they won't think anything because they know that I have female friends. So that was different. It was more after that that we had difficulty navigating dating because I would need a caregiver for my daughter. He would need a caregiver for his sons. I mean, I need a caregiver for my son too, but my daughter, much more difficult to take care of. So, yeah. So, anytime we need to go downtown Cincinnati, so with it, I have a radius that I felt comfortable leaving the boys alone and getting outside that radius requires much more logistical planning and advance notice. And I was going to say, I think the other thing for us that's telling is when you look at once we were a couple, our very first time that we had ever been away together without our kids or done anything was at Camp Fi. And we left for, I was there two nights, I guess. And that was tricky. We had been together for almost two years at that point, William. Yeah. And we've only had one other time that we have ever been without our kids. And that was this past summer for a few nights that we were away for his high school reunion. But it's very different. We don't go on trips. We often don't have, I mean, pandemic has certainly been in that too, but it tends to be more that we will go to lunch while the kids are at school or something like that to have time together. Gary, for clarification purposes, talk about the special needs your daughter has as opposed to William's children. Sure. My daughter is now 23. She was born when I was 23 weeks pregnant. So she was a pound and two ounces at birth. And I think that makes things very different for me versus William, because I thought from the very start, there's no way, even if she survives this, she will have some sort of difficulty. I just knew that luck wasn't that she wouldn't. And so I, even though they wouldn't diagnose her with cerebral palsy, I was certain that she had that. It was just that we had to wait until she was old enough that a doctor would feel comfortable with her developmental delays. But still, even with that, not knowing what my future held was big. You know, would she walk? Would she not? Would she be able to talk? Could she, what things could she be able to do? And so for Addison, it's been very different in that she very much is of average intelligence. She does have some developmental delay, but I wouldn't say that's significant. And then she is in a wheelchair full-time, uses her wheelchair, cannot transfer herself from the wheelchair into a bed or from the wheelchair into a toilet or things like that. And so hers are very much physical disabilities. And so a frustration for her a lot of times is feeling that her body has failed her because in her mind, she can do it all. And there are a lot of things that she can do and it's trying to figure out how to adapt it or what to do. I mean, The girl could cook better than caregivers that she's had, and she's taught them how to cook. She just can't physically reach to be able to do things and things like that. So her disability has been a lot of equipment, a lot of therapies, a lot of, you know, just managing different things and not being able to live independently just because of the physical piece. William, I want to take a look from a thousand feet here and talk about how either adults with special needs or the parents of adults with special needs fit into the financial independence community. When you think about financial independence for yourself and for Carrie, I wonder if it means something different to you than it would for your average person on this journey. Because what you're talking about is 
physical and support needs that are a little bit harder to budget for, right? As someone who doesn't have these issues in their lives, I can pretty much say, I expect that my spending will be X over the next 10 years. And if not, I can always be a little more frugal or change things around a little bit. As I listen to your situation, I wonder, William, is there such thing as financial independence? Because I wonder how you would calculate it. Yeah, that's a very hard question, or it's a very hard situation to be in. Mostly, so it's affected me in multiple ways. I have a recognition that my kids are very, very unlikely to ever match my earning potential. So I'm a classic tech bro. I've made six figures soon after getting out of college and built upon that. But I also recognize that, that, yeah, that my kids are probably not going to be able to find that kind of position and do well in that kind of position for them. So for me, I'm also trying to think about their long-term future because I want them to have a level of financial independence, but it's probably not going to be a financial independence that they achieve on their own. So it made the one more year syndrome very difficult for me to walk away from my corporate career because every year that I was in there and not really needing the money, but it was like an extra year that padded onto their independence. So it wasn't a matter of just figuring out what my 25X or what my safe withdrawal rate would be. It's what would it be? What am I leaving my kids as well to make sure that they're also financially secure? Carrie, it's an interesting point because when I think about my own children, at some point mentally, I think they're going to get to an age and then take care of themselves. As you think about your daughter, is there a time when you think she'll be able to financially support herself or financially cleave herself from you? She really has already done that, but that's only from the help of government assistance that's been able to do that. And I think that's one of the things that's very different in the journey that William has been on with his boys and me with Addison. And one of the things that I said to him earlier was, I think it's really important when doing this podcast to share that for me, the unpredictability, I am so grateful for somebody. My daughter was in the NICU for 89 days and I had a parent that had like a parent support group. And someone said, you don't think you ever need it, but go ahead and apply for a Medicaid waiver. And I asked what that was. And she said that at some point, you know, there is a waiver program that's in Ohio through the county, and it can give your child a waiver for to have a medical card, to have extra funding, even if you're financially okay. And I thought, well, why am I doing this? Because we have insurance. At that time, I was married and her dad and I will be able to cover that. But I am so grateful that this woman told me that because I applied. And in the meantime, my daughter ended up as she grew up when she was 14. I was divorced. And as a single mom, even more saw those needs, but her needs just got a lot greater. When your kid needs something when they're little, a piece of equipment that they need isn't so expensive. But it took 17 and a half years before I got off the Medicaid waiver waiting list. And she actually got a waiver. Had I waited just a few years, we would have been in trouble with that. But so I think my planning was a little bit different there and and knowing that there would probably be things. I guess it for me, like now, she does have Medicaid. She is actually on SSI. And so it is different because she lives in basically a group home facility. So all the money that she gets every month goes directly to them. And so it covers, they cover everything, but it is very different for me in that I still see her as my daughter. Now she can earn money. She does earn money. Um, She automatically gets a certain bit every month from them, but then they do a workshop there and she can work additional to make money. But that's been a change for her, learning things such as before she would have a little money left over here and there. or And now that all of her SSI goes to covering that, which covers her food, everything, that's great. But at the same time, spending money you're going to have to work more to have more spending money or, and I'm still trying to balance out, you know, when 
I want her to have a cell phone. So how much of that do I pay for? How much of it do I pay for her? Because she doesn't have the chances to make a typical salary or do those things. I think that independent, she's probably as independent as she'll ever be. Is it possible she was in a condo before and had caregivers coming in? She could definitely do that. The problem is more about not that she failed at that, that the system failed her because getting good quality caregivers was so difficult. And so this is a much more stable environment for her. And socialization is much better for her now because she lives with 11 other people. In fact, she just sent me a message not too long ago to let me know they're going to Applebee's for lunch and going on an outing that she didn't always get to do before. I didn't have that community recommending the waiver program. So when my late wife and I moved to Ohio, I became aware of the waiver program, but I had great insurance. It covered the therapies, it covered the medical. And so I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to apply for Medicaid and take it away from somebody else when I have a job here that will cover what I need. And so I didn't. And so, yeah, it really hurt. So the, the, the boys, even to this day are still on my personal health care plan. And that's something that I'm working on. We are basically doing the paperwork and doing the process to get them more onto Medicaid and their own medical coverage. Now that they're 20. And I think when, You were talking about planning for things. You just, you can't possibly know everything that your child's going to need. I love to blow people away by saying that my daughter is in a power wheelchair and it, I mean, it wasn't my out of pocket, but it's 40 some thousand dollars for her wheelchair. People look at me, I'm like, yeah, it's more expensive than a vehicle. That's a luxury car. And there is a part of that that comes out of pocket, but then because she can only get a new wheelchair every three to five years, depending, but that they won't do things like, for instance, she has a manual wheelchair that was a backup. It was her old wheelchair. They will no longer pay for anything to work on that once they buy a power, which is very difficult because that means she can only ride in the van that I have that is wheelchair accessible. We can't transfer her into William's vehicle and throw a another wheelchair in the back or something like that. We also had, there's a piece of equipment that's similar to how a Hoyer lift works, but it's it's something that helps her move called a Sarah study. And insurance bought one, but then it got to be a problem because she was going to a day program and going to work and we needed one there. And it's too big to try to put her power wheelchair and this piece of equipment into a vehicle. They won't pay for a second one. So we ended up buying it normally. And this is where our frugality comes in. It's about $3,000 for this piece of equipment, but we were able to find something very similar and buy it online that was $800. But it's still $800 out of pocket that you didn't expect. And that's just for her to be able to move from her wheelchair to a seat or to the toilet or wherever she's going. So William's kids, I think it's more unpredictable to know what their needs are going to be but financially, there's not, you know, a $40,000 wheelchair or something like that, that equipment-wise, that's not their needs. Their needs are more. It really goes to the need to prepare for a lot more. Like when you're in a situation where your child has issues, is not just the issues associated with your child, it's everything around it. So, for example, if my car broke down, it would be no problem for me to go to a used car lot and buy a used car in cash. That's just something that I can do because my kids can hop into the car. If Carrie's van breaks down, that's a specialized piece of medical gear that, I mean, it has to be accessible for her to have ramps and has to be, have the lockdowns. That's not something that you can just go to a used car lot and pick one up used. Not generally like emergency funds have to be larger. For me, even like iPads, for example, are communication devices for some kids with autism. So a kid, especially a kid with autism, can oftentimes have meltdowns and they throw things that are in their hand. They're not intending to break electronics, but electronics often are broken. I've had 
more than I can count the number of iPads or computers that just were destroyed during a period of frustration. And it's not something where, well, you need to learn your lesson and you don't get your iPad because that's how they communicate. Carrie, as we talk about, you mentioned frugality and William mentioned the emergency fund. And these are topics that are very comfortable in the financial independence space. But in the last few minutes, we've also talked about Medicaid and waivers and SSI and $40,000 wheelchairs. You guys are part and parcel of this financial independence community. You go to these events like Camp Fi. I'm wondering, do you identify with the people you meet? I mean, a lot of times we have 20-something-year-old couples with no kids, and they're talking to you about their struggles about making money and side hustling. How does that feel to you? Can you identify with what they're going through? Yes, I do. But I noticed who I know and who I hang out with are probably different than even who William knows and William hangs out with. Because I do seem to be drawn to a lot of single moms and people that have a different path. And and part of that is probably because a piece of me that I could have been I didn't know about financial independence when I was in my 20s. I was then married to somebody who would have not gotten on board with that. So while I was making a good salary, even he was making a decent salary, then we were not looking towards the future that way and not building wealth in that way that frustrates me now because I feel so behind the eight ball in a lot of ways. Uh, At the same time, I think that people make an assumption because they hear that I have a PhD, I work as a mental health counselor, they think I'm a high earner. I'm not. And just because of the field that I've chosen, and there's been times I've joked with William where I've said, like, if I did it all over again, I should have just not liked working with people. I should have just liked numbers or something like that. But I know it's not true. But I find myself often in the women's group within financial independence, there's a whole group of us that are all counselors, social workers working in that field. And I tend to talk with them more, to hang with them a little bit more because I feel like I have more to contribute or am more a part of. I can't say that the 20 year olds that are talking about, they're both making six figures. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I would love that in some ways. But at the same time, it's really about the approach of what what they're looking at and what they value. And that is where I connect with them. But I don't have their lived experience. So it does make it, it different for me. So I can relate to the financial journey. What's hard for me is the sense of independence. So for example, travel is a really big motivator for people taking down a, a five path or going down the five path. And credit card churning and vacations and being able to get out. And that's just a harder thing for me to relate to because my kids are so, they have such a hard time with change. So staying home and staying places that they're familiar with and that they have their routines and they have the food that they like, that is much more my, I feel much more bound by them than I than people who are able to jaunt off to to Mexico and have a long vacation or even telecommute. So people who are road warriors and are taking their five path in, or even something like, oh, I forget what the term is, uh, geo-arbitration for medical costs. Geo-arbitrage, yeah. Yeah, the idea of me hopping down to Mexico for dental work that has, well, yeah, I could get cheaper dental work, but I'm spending a couple thousand dollars for childcare during that time. So it w- it doesn't make, I mean, there are some things that work for some people don't work for other people. And, and my considerations are more, much more, it's harder for me to travel. It's harder for me to get away from the house just because it's harder for them to leave the house. And I think that's a part of it for us that is different too, because financially, could you afford to do that? Absolutely. You could pay that and go, but it goes back to our values too. I mean, we literally have done that about going out places. Like it's not about how much money are you spending to go to this event or to go out to dinner, but then you've got to factor in that we're paying double that for a caregiver. And so 
is it really worth that much money to us? I mean, when we went to economy and we, that's a case where it was an all day and multi-day event and it costs much more for the childcare than the actual event. Totally worth it, but it's something that we factor in. We are talking to William McVeigh and Carrie Chevalier. They are maneuvering financial independence with special needs kids. We are going to take a short break. This is Doc G and you are listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing. And there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals. And let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave. And two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Over 30,000 investors across the U.S. are discovering a new way to build wealth. Equity Multiple brings you access to a diverse wealth generation ecosystem with cash-flowing real estate. Starting with just $5,000, you can allocate to professionally managed commercial real estate assets. Sign up in minutes, find investments that fit your strategy, and invest your desired amount through a streamlined, secured platform. Since 2015, Equity Multiple has delivered over $170 million in distributions to investors and 17.4% aggregate net return. Join the thousands of investors nationwide who are building stronger, more diversified portfolios through real estate investing. Sign up at equitymultiple.com forward slash earn and receive an enhanced return on your first investments. All investments involve risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. Again, that is equitymultiple.com forward slash earn. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to William McVeigh and Carrie Chevalier about financial independence when you have special needs kids, both the financial and emotional issues that surround being not the typical financial independence person. William, a little while back, we were talking about how you didn't apply for the Medicaid waiver because you just didn't know. And I'm wondering, as you've gotten to know more about what it takes financially to bring up special needs kids, do you think most people in your situation know what resources are available to them? It was harder for me because I moved from Texas to Ohio uh, to be closer to family. So normally you would have like an intake coordinator. So even in Texas, we had an early childhood interventionist and they would track you on to what the state programs were. When we moved, we just didn't do a very good job of getting integrated into that pipeline. So it was a, a late kind of addition into the pipeline. And yeah, and the Medicaid waiver programs vary from state to state. And what we had in Texas wasn't the same kind of thing that we have here in Ohio. So I, a lot of that was just, I didn't know. The other factor was, my late wife was actually taking care of a lot of it. So what what we did know was kind of knowledge that she had embedded and then we lost when she passed away. Carrie, we mentioned the Medicaid waiver. Talk about some of the resources available from the government, especially when it comes to healthcare assistance. Is there a lot available to parents with special needs kids? There's a lot available. It just takes a lot of grueling paperwork and time to get there. And that's why, you know, like I said, somebody had 
had shared that with me when my daughter is in the NICU. That's kind of the gift I give now that I see a contribution is telling people just apply for stuff, even if you don't think you need it. Because if your number comes up, you can refuse it. But you find out that there's all different kinds of waivers and they, in Ohio at least, are very dependent upon what county you live in. And it's very different how they're managed in different counties. So for me, moving to the county that we're in now actually sped things up for my daughter, which is odd that just literally moving a county can change things and make decisions. Because you're looking when I moved here from Georgia and looking at best school systems, didn't think about also looking at how to live in the right county in order to get that because the county has to make a Medicaid match. There's also different services that are offered in different counties. For us, I did have family support services. William has that actually with his kids too, that provides some bit of money, even if you don't have a Medicaid waiver, but it's very specific what it can be used for. It can be used for things like going towards a summer camp or using it for equipment is what I've done in the past is needed to use that. Also home modifications for me, some a bit of that, which certainly it didn't even come close to covering, but putting a ramp in a, a home. And so I was fortunate to have a family member that is skilled at doing that and he could build it, but the material costs, I could at least get picked up by the money there. And then it it is bewildering just to know, and I feel so fortunate that here we have Cincinnati Children's Hospital and they do a great job of also doing things for parents. There's a lot of active parent groups, and then there are things that they offer on transition programming and how to navigate, whether it's applying for Medicaid or SSI or things like that. And then they have parent advocates that will literally walk you through that and tell you, like, here's where you need to go. Here's what you need to do. I can tell you, though, one of the challenges I have is I have a very hard time dealing with bureaucracies. And you're dealing with government programs and you're dealing with state programs, federal programs and county programs and just dealing with the paperwork and the bureaucracy of even something as simple as we need an assessment and the wait list or the wait time to get um, seen by Children's, which is a great hospital, but it's a great hospital that's very much in demand. So getting someone getting a neurology appointment can be a lengthy process. And that's just something that I am a numbers guy and I'm kind of a, an immediate, yeah, I guess some level of ADHD. I, I want my responses fast. I want to see progress. And the idea of sitting in front of a stack of paperwork is, is not something that I'm very well cut out for. So it, it can be, it can be a challenge for personality types to deal with even the programs that are available, but you're just still having to go through and, and do the application. You have to do all the documentation, and then have to do it again a year later and again a year later, which is frustrating. So fortunately for William, he has a partner that that's something I do. And I think a bit for me, yes, it's just as frustrating and annoying, but I'm annoyed by the whole system. And I've decided like, I'm going to advocate and beat it. You want me to do this paperwork and jump through these hoops? I'm going to jump through them better than anybody you've ever seen. And when you tell me no, I'm just going to redo it. And so that tenacity that is difficult. And when you're trying to just raise your kids and deal with the normal things in life, and then on top of this, you have a special needs child, it is frustrating. And just the process is so bewildering. It is very different even applying for things for his kiddos versus my daughter and what that looks like. And I think a great example is even filling out the paperwork for them now that they are adults towards SSI. We, I literally filled out the applications for them on the exact same day. William, of course, has to sign off and do all of that. But I did the, the grunt work behind that, turned them in at the exact same time. And the process, even the boys are different, but just the process has been so extremely different for one of his sons to get evaluated was very quick. We had his evaluation before we even got the information about his other son being evaluated. And at this point, one son has already been approved for his SSI and the other one, we still haven't gotten that. They've finished the evaluation and he's actually the one whose needs are more severe, if you want to put it that way. And 
just the paperwork. It's so delayed. Now, the good thing is it will go back to the application 30 days from the application date. But it's just, it goes to show you how you just have to keep up on it and keep asking questions. And it's easy to get sidetracked along the way for anybody, but especially when you're trying to navigate this with kids with special needs, just the tenacity to stay on top of that. When we're talking about SSI, we're talking about, I believe, supplemental security income for those of us who who don't know necessarily uh, the language behind special needs. As I'm listening to you, Carrie, I'm wondering, where do parents get these resources? I mean, is the onus on you to figure it out as the parent, or is there an actual process in which either the hospitals or the caretakers or someone brings this information to you to help you through it? In all honesty, it is on the parent. There are resources there, but you have to know to ask for them. And I've found that very frustrating at times that it is other parents that share that information, even in talking to somebody who is a cerebral palsy expert. So they work with lots of people with disabilities. There are questions you ask them and they, nobody in their office has any idea what that looks like. And that is so frustrating. And I get it. I They can't possibly know everything. They're trying to handle the medical part. But I love that there is now at at Children's and a few other places that in the country that have started, you know, a cerebral palsy clinic where there is a social worker that comes in and is a part of that to help team. But that again goes to here's some resources. And honestly, I get it from some parents. It's like, I don't need one more thing. I don't need one more appointment that I have to go to, one more evaluation that I have to go through. And for my daughter at one point, you know, I've said that I would love just to tell all of these folks that are specialists with her to bring them all into one great big room and say, let's sit down and figure this out because she has had up to 14 different doctors at one time treating different things. And that goes back to the parent to even do the case management piece of that. But then you're trying to figure out, so this person's saying this and that's costing me this much money. And how do I apply it and how do I use that? So for me, it really has been other parents that have walked this path that have helped me so much. There are resources. We've had some really good coordinators at our local, for us, it's the DD, Developmental Disabilities. And so I've had some really great coordinators, but I've had some that they rely on you to ask the questions. They don't share that information with you. And then others that probably... I don't know what their job necessarily thought of it, but they were ones that were saying, hey, you should apply for this or you should do this. The other place that we haven't mentioned is teachers. They are a goldmine. If you have a good special education, early intervention, intervention specialist, they often know a great deal of information that they can share, but they have to walk a certain line too, because if there's things that they bring up during an IEP meeting or something like that, it's negotiable, whether it's really true, but there's some things that they could put the school on the hook as if like if they recommend it, then the school has to pay for it. That's debatable of whether that's really true, but that's what the belief is. So they are very careful in what they say. And but I have found some really great intervention specialists have told me about programs that I had no idea existed. Or they would put me in touch with another parent. So the parent could give me that information. And That has been the number one thing for me is much like I don't believe that financial independence is very easily done without community. I would say navigating life with a special needs child very much takes that community and finding the paths that other people have taken and and different ways of doing that. William, let's pivot from general care, health and well-being to the financial side There are some financial instruments out there to help you plan for your own and your child's financial future. Talk about some of the things out there that maybe people don't know about. Sure. The two probably biggest vessels for handling money when you have a child with disabilities or with special needs are the 529 ABLE program. So much like the 529 education, the 529 ABLE is a federal program to allow money to grow tax-free for aid of someone who has disability and to be spent not just on education, but also on 
living accommodations and adaptions and basically the things that SSI doesn't cover. The other is a special needs trust. Both of those are important because there are income caps on, for example, Medicaid. And if you have more than, I think it's like $2,000, you can be excluded from um, SSI. So both the 529 ABLE and special needs trusts allow you to avoid those income caps. You can have more money in those accounts than you would normally have in like a savings account. The other the other one it, that probably is much more immediate is an HSA. So an HSA allows you to, to take funds, deposit them, let them grow through investments, and then use those funds for health expenses, which can include therapies and can include adaptions or medical devices. And it's just a way to use the market growth and you don't have to pay taxes on that. So you don't pay taxes when you put the money in and you don't pay taxes when you take the money out. So Carrie, as William talks about these financial instruments, it makes me wonder about the conception of enough when you have a special needs child, because I know I struggle with this idea of what's enough money. We have all sorts of ways of calculating in the general financial independence community about how to know when we've accumulated the right amount. Do you ever feel just kind of looking at your situation that you're going to reach enough? Never. And I think that's very, very different for me when I look at the financial situation my daughter is in versus the financial situation that William's kids are in. And that comes from the financial situation I'm in versus the financial situation William is in. And so I wish that I had been better and more planful in doing that. But I just know that I have to do the best I can with what I've got. And I also have a a different pivot in that I have a 13-year-old. And it's interesting because for both William and I, for the first time, have a child that we're thinking about college or things like that that are very different. Not to say our kids won't ever do that, but you know, knowing that my son, looking at that, I worry about, and, and that's a constant thing for me, how much do I put into things for myself and my own financial independence? How much do I put in towards things to help my son, who is a typical 13-year-old? And then how much do I put to leave for my daughter? And so right now, I have had to prioritize just my own financial independence and then hope that in time, I can work more towards hers. William, you left your job quite a bit ago and I think you'd consider yourself in a way early retired. I, I know you do some things that probably make money anyway, but tell me your concept of retirement compared to what someone as part of our community who doesn't have a special needs child, what it would look like to them versus you. Again, that's a harder one for me because my kids are still in school and they're still living at home and they'll be living at home until at least probably age 22. So my retirement, when, when I quit my corporate job, I considered myself early retired. More and more, I've taken on more responsibility in other projects. I'm feeling less like I've retired and more like I'm, I'm, impl- I'm just, I'm alternately employed. I, I started employment at a startup. But I guess the big thing is I still don't feel like I have autonomy over my own life because I'm still primarily a caregiver for my kids. Um, and my kids don't have the same kinds of interests that I do. So it, it's a very, it's an independence, but it's not true independence to do what I want. Carrie, I want to move on to another idea here. I was thinking about the ups and downs of our political climate. Every four years, we have elections in the United States. It brings in a new president, possibly from a new party. I'm wondering how much politics plays into your day-to-day life when it comes for caring for your special needs child. Do the, does the political climate change how easy or hard it is for you to do what you do? Do the benefits change depending on who's in power and what type of legislation they're passing? I would say at the national level, not as much as at the local level. 
And I see that all the time because so much of the funding on the national level stays pretty much the same as far as if you look at, you know, an SSI program or something like that. But it's more that local stuff of how local dollars are spent, what county, how they handle that. In fact, there's somebody who has run who is a, she is an attorney, but she's a special needs mom here in our county who I would love to see get elected. She hasn't won yet. There's a strong voice of special needs parents that are behind her because she does look at that and take it into account. And she's pushed for certain legislation or funding for programs or things like that. So I see it definitely on the local level, less so on the national level. And I totally agree, especially with school systems. So for example, um, local school cuts or funding cuts from a state level meant that the school that my kids go to had to reduce the number of paraprofessionals. So that meant that instead of having somebody who could be alongside one of my, or like my kids one-on-one, the ratios became much more difficult and it's just harder to get. Yeah. I would say that the, the local is much more impactful than state or from federal. The, the one thing I would say is when the 529 ABLE um, program passed, that's only been within the past 15 years, 10 years. That was a big thing that happened at the federal level that really made a big difference. And the, the different laws associated with access for disability, for example, has been helpful. Yeah. I was going to say for me, the financial piece nationally is about research funding. And that's one that I am very committed to. Cerebral palsy, most people have heard of. It is a big, huge umbrella diagnosis. And the lack of federal funding to look at research is abominable to me. And it it is funny because there are folks in the CP community that get frustrated with the autism community. And I live in both of those because there is so much funding that goes towards looking at autism and research. And if some of that were shifted over, there's thoughts about what that would change for folks with cerebral palsy. And I think a piece of that that's happening is because before there were not, you know, for my daughter and for a lot of people who have cerebral palsy, premature birth is a big factor of why. And those kids, I mean, if my daughter, her neonatologist said if she would have been born 10 years earlier, there's no way she would have, they wouldn't even have tried to revive her. If she had not been at the hospital she was at, they would have called her a late-term miscarriage. So now we have these people with CP that are growing up and growing older. And that's a whole new ballgame of now that you've got adults that are living longer who have these physical disabilities and looking at that. And so that's where I get more frustrated at the federal level is looking at funding and how we get lines of money that are going towards research and treatments and preventative measures. Carrie, we mentioned the fact that the Medicaid waiver is something you did right early on in your journey. Tell me about some of the things you feel like you did wrong looking back. Just not, I don't know if this is special to having a kid with special needs or just in general of where I was financially and how I spent money, I would have done that very differently. I would have saved more. I would have put that. I, and this is not to put all the onus on my ex-husband, but he and I have very different thoughts about financial information. So even though I would continue to earn more and do things, a lot of money went out the door. And so I would look at that differently. I also... Just just be more planful. I mean, the ABLE was not, it, we didn't have ABLE yet whenever my daughter was younger before that was passed. But I wish that I would have been more thoughtful in putting money into that and looking at it in a different way. So she would have more stability later on. And I think just in general, it, the financial piece is always difficult within, I, I don't find too many when I go and and meet with other parents with kids with special needs I don't often find people that have money to sock away or to do things with. That seems pretty rare. A lot of people are living very paycheck to paycheck. And so trying to find ways to cut or to do things so you can set your child up 
I think we look a lot at programming and services for our kids, but there isn't enough information about how to use, for instance, the HSA. I think that's a brilliant thing that that William has done throughout. I haven't always been in a position where that was offered necessarily of where I was, but now knowing that there were ways to navigate that, that I wish I would have done that would have saved me money that I in turn could have invested in something towards my daughter. William, often we don't do these things because we don't know. Let's look specifically at the financial side. Are there resources out there for parents of people with special needs so that they can learn about those financial resources? Are there websites or podcasts or or good places to go? Okay. So at the risk of like showing my bias, there's a Facebook group of that Choose F I have set up for parents of special needs. So Choose F I has we call them cohort groups or topical interest groups. And yeah, I set one up for parents of special needs. And that's on Facebook. So that that covers a lot of things. And there a lot of, most of the questions there are with a financial independence mindset or among people within the FI community who are dealing with these type of challenges. The hard part for that is it's one group and what what Carrie's mentioned before is the importance of local knowledge. So even questions that are answered or asked, I often I have to caveat where with at least in Ohio, this is the situation. Someone who's in just one state over could have well, does have very different answers oftentimes. But beyond that, there's a 529 able website. I can pass to you and make sure it gets into the show notes, but it gives details about the the ABLE programs for each state. So much like the 529 education programs, those are administered by the state and each state has its own like set of investment options. And you can choose which state you open up the account in, but you can only have one. You have to choose one state's program to put your 529 funds into. It often happens where you get a tax benefit, a state tax benefit, if you use your state's ABLE program, but oftentimes there isn't. So in which case you can pretty much use any state's program independent. I mean, you don't have to live in the state in order to participate in their 529 ABLE. William and Carrie, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. I think it's important for those of us in the personal finance and financial independence community to realize that we all face different struggles. And sometimes your struggles are different than mine. And it's good to have an open mind and realize that just because financial independence was one way for you doesn't mean it was the same way for everyone else. The other takeaway, I think, is if you are a parent of someone with special needs, that there's hope. There are people who are going through this. There are support groups. And certainly it sounds like there are resources. I wanted to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life. And if people want to reach out to you and learn more, how can they first, Carrie, tell us what is going on in your life right now? And if people want to reach out to you, is there a way they can? Sure. Right now, I feel like I'm just going through life a little bit, a step at a time. It has been different because uh, for the longest time, I've had my daughter at the forefront. I mean, she's still at the forefront, but having to take care of her day-to-day needs and that, I can't even tell you what a relief it is to know that my daughter is living someplace where she's happy, her needs are being met, and I can turn my focus a little differently on being able to take care of other pieces of my own life and my family. I'm continuing to work in private practice doing telehealth, and that's a big part of my financial independence journey because it's more the independence piece, I guess, in that trying to find ways to work creatively so I can have the other parts of my life that I enjoy and do. As far as if anybody wants to look me up, they are certainly welcome to reach out to me by email, and that is just Dr. Carrie Chevalier, which is D-R-K-E-R-R-Y. C-H-E-V-A-L-I-E-R at gmail.com. And I would love to connect if anybody's looking for further information or if I can help you uh, point you in the right direction to finding groups and resources where you are. 
And William, why don't you tell us how specifically to access that Choose FI Facebook group for parents with special needs? And if people want to reach out to you directly, how can they do that? The Facebook group for the for the support group for parents is the Choose FI Parents with Children and Disabilities. And how to get in touch with me? I'm part of the Earn and Invest Facebook group. And to address the what's up and what's going on with me and what's biggest on my priority list is my kids are actually graduating this year. So we're going through the same kinds of things that other parents are. So figuring out and doing party planning and then also figuring out the vocational training associated with what their next step is. So they'll be going through vocational training. I have another son that's actually going to be staying with the high school for a bit longer, even after he's gotten his diploma. But that's the biggest thing happening here. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, I'd like to thank William McVeigh and Carrie Chevalier. That's a wrap. Awesome. And I'm just realizing that, that when I did my redo, I didn't mention how to get hold of me. That's okay. I can, can I can that. edit it in and clip it together yeah. so it works. So anything, I, I love that you did it that way, William, because I thought if William gives his email address, that's going to be hysterical because he will never get to that. No. Yeah. And and don't worry, no one ever notices. Like if you if you say it all or not, no one ever notices. So so, but I will yeah. I will clip it in. So is there anything we didn't talk about? Like you think we should have? There's a couple of things from a technical for someone. I mean, that's more on like you didn't want the focus to be on the the nitty gritty. A couple of things on the nitty gritty that I feel like if someone who had disabilities or is going through this probably should know. But this isn't the right. Tell me now. Because this will be um, in the after show. So things like life insurance. So it's just your kids, special needs kids just depend on their parents a lot more. So I would say not to underestimate the value of a life insurance policy for the, the main provider of the house, but also for the care provider. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And people don't often think about it. Yeah. Well, you know, there's something I was thinking about at, at some point during this, like you don't think about that you're going to get divorced or things like that. But it is interesting because when I got divorced, they did not look at child support being any more for my daughter than my son. Hmm. And it is interesting because what I pay for her is a lot more than what I would be paying for my son. And that is never factored in. I also got really frustrated because even though it said in our divorce decree that he had to pay child support until she finished schooling, that didn't happen. And when she turned 18, somehow or other child support enforcement decided that, I don't even know how they did that. They said that she graduated, but she hadn't. She was actually at 18 her entire senior year of high school anyway. Mm -hmm. But there became a point where at that point, things were so strange between the two of us. And I thought, you know what? Screw it. If I get child support, it's going to come out like that counts against her on SSI. And I trust the federal government to pay me more than I do fighting my ex-husband. But it does suck because kind of like William, he and I both have that mentality to some degree of why should I take money away from somebody else? But I had to tell myself I was doing that for my daughter. It wasn't my fault that her dad was the way he was. But I mean, there's so many things like that or the frustration that, you know, just even the legalities of all of that stuff is so different because he still gets to claim her until she was 20. He was still claiming her every other year on the taxes, even though he didn't see her at all. Never saw her, never takes her. He... Mm. Yeah. So there's things like that that, I mean, don't have to be in the pot, but I think are things that people have to think about of what that looks like in as you're raising a child that you don't know what that future looks like. And so thank God I had applied for the Medicaid waiver because it took a long time, but it helped set up a lot of things for her because just looking at you know, insurance, it wasn't, it's not anymore because 
the family, but now looking at it and being self-employed, there's no way I could have paid that to have her too. Because just the out-of-pocket, I mean, having a high deductible plan would never have worked well with her because so much money gets spent on that. William, other stuff besides? That was the one that was like on my list of things to do or to make sure get mentioned. That's the one thing that was not mentioned. But I mean, so we've covered, I mean, I don't think there's anything other than what we've already covered as part of the podcast. Well, thank you guys for doing this. I know it's not always the easiest thing. And you guys are some of the clearest voices about what this actually is. Mm -hmm. Clear, unapologetic, knowledgeable. And I don't think we have people like that in all realms of finance, certainly, but certainly not finance and special needs. So I think it's an important story to tell. And I I think think you guys, you guys, I, from hearing your stories, I get an inkling of how hard it must be. And yet you guys always seem to carry it off with so much class. And uh, I think that's we try. (laughs) As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 